HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported, nonprofit radio station devoted to all things food, and we need your support during our end-of-year fund drive. A contribution in any amount not only supports our 34 weekly programs, it also comes with exclusive member benefits like monthly best-of playlists, sweet new gifts, discounted event tickets, members-only parties, and more. So if you like good food and you love good food radio, throw a little dough our way. Give your gift by going to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate. Today's program is brought to you by the Christmas Tree Farmers Association of New York, partnering with Grow NYC to make farm fresh trees and wreaths available at green markets. For more information, visit christmastreesny.org. Hey, and welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel, here today with a familiar voice, Aaron Fairbanks of the Farm Report, but <laughs> that's pulling out all the stops today here, David. Also, Executive Director of HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I don't know where these sound effects have been my whole life. Like, these are being incorporated to the food scene 2017 and moving forwards. But, you know, today marks a very kind of special uh, episode of the food scene because it, it's going to be reflective. Uh, Aaron's, you know, been with the station since, what, 2009 you started as a host. Uh, yeah, just, yeah, just right around there. And then 2012, you became executive director of the station itself. That is true. So you've got to see how... Food radio, food podcasting has evolved over that near decade. Um, well, geez, Michael, now <laughs> I'm like... <laughs> I mean, but it, it's kind of an amazing thing, yeah. because I, I know you're past 300 episodes, I'm past 300 episodes, but every week it just kind of feels fresh and new because of the people that we get to have in this studio totally. and the conversations, you know that are held, um, you know, and, and they're so wonderful and moving and make you want to do more, and... 
this marks a point in your life where you're about to do more, leaving us as executive director and forging a new path in, in literature and policy. And so a big coup to you for that and oh, for all the you. years that you put in here. Thank you. Um, we also have to give love to Michigan. Oh, man. Yes, Michigan. You being from the <laughs> Bidden State and uh, myself now being associated with it and fully in love with most everything it has. Um, you know, growing up up north, uh, is that what they call Rogers City, up north? Up north, yeah. And then usually people are like, oh, the UP. I'm like, no, about as far north as you can get. Oh, that's still like, be in the lower That's peninsula. like me being from West Chester and people calling it upstate. Yeah. I'm like, no, no, it's, it's like an hour from the city. It's, right. It's Westchester County. But, you know, Michigan is a beautiful mecca of all things, most namely to people in the food industry, Zingerman's. I kind of want to start there for you because that was kind of the beginnings of your food path and the way you figured out structure within that industry itself. So talk to me about the deli. Uh, Zingerman's Deli. Well, you know, I started there really on an uh, on accident. I had been studying abroad my the second half of my uh, sophomore year and when I came back that summer, my friend Caricia had been working at this place called Zingerman's that I'd heard about, but I was like, oh, that's the expensive sandwich place that like I couldn't afford. Plus it was down in Carytown, so it was like a little bit away from uh, main campus. Um, but I was like, yeah, you think I could get a job there? She's like, sure, let me give you a uh, let me give you Darren's name, Darren Latimer. He was one of the managers at the time who hired me and many people have gone on to be like my lifelong friends. It was like a really special kind of post first grand European adventure landing spot where all of the kind of foods and food traditions and cultures that I had experienced abroad were really being lived like day to day in the middle of Michigan, which totally blew my mind. I mean, I go there as much as I can, but every Christmas I'm in there perusing, buying gifts for myself usually, not even stocking <laughs> stuffers for other people. But, you know, every product is a story, has a story, and you can experience there uh, in a way that you can't in most other places by tasting it. Yeah, that, like, that was really kind of one of the cool things as a staff member is you were allowed to give someone a taste of anything they wanted, and that included everything up to the $150 bottle of aged balsamic vinegar. Um, and for yourself, you could taste. I mean, I feel like so much of my early food knowledge was really built on just having access to all these amazing cheeses and chocolates and oils in a really kind of soft way where I could go and every day I could taste a piece of cheese and see what happened throughout the aging process and over the course of the year and from wheel to wheel and different type of storage methods and like from when the wheel was first cracked to when it had been sitting. Um, and it's a real kind of that repetition. It's like a real luxury and way to get your taste buds kind of at a thousand really quickly. Uh, it's, you know, it's an advantage I think that is tougher to replicate for, for just eating at home. Well, and also you have the community there. Oh, uh, my gosh. So like many smart people. The Zingerman's community is something kind of the behold. One of my best friends, um, who is one of the best musicians I know, kind of a vagabond, a roaming minstrel <laughs> bard type, if you will, moved to Michigan when his wife got a job at U of M. And I introduced him to Zingerman's in hopes that, you know, he'd follow through with his job. And it became his life for five years behind the cheese counter, eventually becoming the tin king uh, tin fish king um 
but it, it was about the way they teach in the curriculum. So tell me about, you know, how you're put through this education, not just as a retail vendor, but, you know, in, in your own experiences and, and, you know, you get to taste what you want to taste. Well, I think they really start with the assumption that their work as employers is to give you as an employee the opportunity to be your best self every day. And when they talk about investing in staff and teaching and training, uh, it's not lip service. They really mean it. You know, when you first start, they totally require it. Um, You know, you have a passport, which is a series of classes and tests and tastings and activities that you have to get signed off on by different people in the Zingerman's orbit. And, And throughout your time there, all of the position advancements come along with that passport. This idea that your performance is being, uh, you know, evaluated and directed by your manager, but ultimately you are the person who has the most incentive to kind of move those things forward. So you carry around the passport. You're the one who has that kind of checklist and doing that really creates this culture of people who are eager to learn, who are looking to taste, who are looking to explore. So, you know, some of the vibe that you might find at other jobs of like, oh man, where you're like mad about like the man, the management, or feeling like you're um, being held back at Zingerman's. I feel like the, uh, the, the energy was always so focused on empowering the bottom line and really growing the organization from the frontline employees up. Because ultimately, we were the ones who were interfacing with customers every day. So I could never give someone who came in to order a sandwich better service than like my manager or one of the managing partners was giving me. So, you know, Ari would, the owner of the entire business would bring me a coffee or ask me about my day. Um, They really kind of modeled that. So it was just like in every direction, the real kind of culture was constantly being reinforced that like um, kind of the expectation is that you want to be here and you want to learn and we're going to give you those tools and we're going to give you really clear expectations on how to advance and go for it. And I totally went for it. Hook, line and sinker. Yeah. But then, I mean, why leave Ann Arbor? Why leave such a utopian society for <laughs> dystopian New York? Oh, man. Well, you know, I think a couple of reasons for me personally. One, I had always dreamed of living in New York City since I was a little girl. Um, I just thought it was like the thing you did if you wanted to live a like cultured, fancy life. And I really wanted to be cultured and fancy. And um, I got to the place at Zingerman's where, um, you know, I felt like the next path that I would want to get on would be one to uh, business ownership. But like, I didn't really know doing what and I really felt like for me in general throughout my career when I've got to the position of like not wanting my boss's job I'm like oh I guess it's like time for me to like go out and find the next thing and so I worked really hard for about a year with uh, Todd Wickstrom who was a managing partner at Zingerman's and also a co-founder of Heritage Foods USA the organization that uh, launched the radio network um, to put together a vision. Zingerman's is really big on visioning. 
you have a they had a vision for you know the twenty year vision for the business uh, vision for the year, a vision for your shift, a vision for plating the potato salad. Um, so there was a lot of uh, resources to really help you think about like in a structured way what you really wanted to achieve. And so I worked a lot with Todd and kind of came up with this plan of like, oh man, I think I really want to work in food. Um, I think that's a thing I can really do as a career, as a professional. Um, so what, what might that look like? And I was like, all right, well, I want to work in a kitchen. I want to work on a farm. And then I want to do some type of advocacy or nonprofit work. And if I do each of those for a year, I'll master that field. <laughs> and, and then I'll know what I want to do with my life. And of course, like many dreams in your early 20s, um, you know, I, I wasn't going to be a master chef in a year. I learned that pretty pretty quickly. <laughs> um, but I do feel like I spent about, you know, the past 11 years really exploring different facets of that vision. And so much like the end of my time at Zingerman's, I feel like as I come to a close of my time as HRN's heritage uh, director, I'm kind of like, ah, what's next? Like, it's like an exciting kind of open time yeah. a little scary yeah no I, scary it, exciting though and, yeah but you know you, you came in the heritage as a delivery driver i mean you can't get more cultured than having to <laughs> you know drive through the recesses of new york during yeah. rush hour trying to deliver meat yeah um but you know from there you, you did go to savoy and gramercy tavern and had two wonderful men at the helm uh peter hoffman and michael anthony and you know aside from the merit of their food Talk to me about the merit of them as leaders. Man, um, well, I'll start with Peter because he came first in, you know, my history. And I think when I really look back at the things that Peter taught me, it was really that, you know, in a very real way, food exists at the center of um, literature and art and culture and that... um, Produce, uh, in particular, and uh, you know, proteins, meats, and fishes, um, to an extent as well. But I really felt like you know, vegetables were a focus there. That you could explore food by bringing in a great poet and building a menu around uh, a reading that they were going to do. You could explore food by creating a space where the walls were covered uh, in beautiful pieces of art from the local community in this real just like intersection of activity savoy i think felt like such a restaurant of new york city um the walls were lined with things from people in the neighborhood the menu was driven by people from the region the diners were kind of regulars and illuminati like i you know malcolm gladwell who i had like the biggest kind of lit crush um, you know, ate lunch with us almost. I cooked his hamburger almost every day while he was writing his books. I mean, he put a thank you to Savoy in the preface of, of one of his books. And I was like, man, I know you don't like our homemade ketchup. You want the Heinz. <laughs> and I know how you like your burger. And you're here every day. And just that, like, really, there was, like, nothing in between us. There was, like, nothing in between all of the amazing kind of art and literature and food. And and that was like such a special thing that I think Peter really brought to the kitchen, brought to the table. Um, Gramercy Tavern is a different, was a different kind of beast of a a restaurant. Um, I 
called Michael Anthony, not to his face, although I'm not actually sure I've ever told him this, the butterfly ninja, because, <laughs> uh, you know, he would move around the kitchen like just you'd turn around and he'd be right behind you. And he would ask you very softly if you had any of the Tokyo turnips that came in from market today. And, you know, at first my reaction was like, why would I have Tokyo turnips on my station? It's not any of the dishes I was doing. Um, and I didn't really like, and then I was like, man, chef, come on. Like, you know that. Um, but what he was really trying to teach me, and I think a lot of the chefs and other line cooks was to just be aware of kind of like what was coming in, what was special, to be prepared on our stations to um, make exceptional food. One of the things about, I loved working about Gramercy is the entire restaurant was designed to cook beautiful food. Um, everything from like the distance between your prep area and your low boy and the range was the right amount of space to move around in. All of the pots were the good pots. You know, you spent no time doing anything other than just really making beautiful food. And that type of environment attracted so many amazing cooks from around the world. And it's, you know, folks that I went through that kitchen with are cooking in Shanghai, in Paris, in Seoul, uh, all over the United States at the heads of kitchen. So it was like his team building and the empowerment that happened there and the real kind of just focus on being prepared to be exceptional every day. Every day the book was 100% you know, booked. There wasn't slow days in the kitchen. It was going to be full and you were going to be like making beautiful food and held to a super high standard every single day. And so we were excited about that. I mean, it was just like it was an amazing kind of cohort of folks that he brought together and like moved moved around that kitchen it was it was a really special time for me yeah and nothing can be more empowering than education and we're going to take a quick break and then go out to the farm and continue this story about aaron fairbanks you've been listening <laughs> to the food scene on heritage radio network.org we'll be right back Ever wonder where your Christmas tree came from? Now you don't have to. New York State grown Christmas trees are now available in New York City. Trees grown on farms here in New York State are harvested just a few days before arrival to the city. Trees cut close to home stay fresh longer, and trees cut close to home travel less, which reduces fuel consumption of delivery vehicles. Did you know that buying a real tree helps to sustain agriculture in New York State by supporting local farmers and keeping important open space in agriculture production? The Christmas Tree Farmers Association of New York is partnering with Grow NYC to make farm fresh trees and wreaths available at green markets in Brooklyn, Queens, and Manhattan. So when you shop local this holiday season, you can include the tree in that list. For more information and a full list of locations, visit ChristmasTreesNY.org. Hey, and welcome back to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm here with Aaron Fairbanks, our fearless leader for the next uh, few weeks of 2016. I I love these chairs. We were just talking about, you know, cooking in some of New York's top restaurants, but, you know, 
farmers have this connectivity to their produce, to their proteins, to the land, but I, I feel like it's only been in the last decade, you know, in line, parallel with the way we cook, that chefs are going out to see and practice, you know, the, the ethos of the farmer that they buy from. And this was part of your grandiose plan as well, to master this craft and understand, <laughs> you know, the dirt where things were grown. And Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that was a plan, right? So I met, I ended up spending uh, just over a year up at Flying Pigs Farm up in Shushan, New York. It's about 200 miles north of the city. Um, they raise rare breed um, pigs. Um, the year I was up there, I think we raised about 600 hogs over the course of the year. We did about a thousand um, meat chicken. I'm sorry, about 600 meat chickens and around 1,200 lane birds. So it was a small scale kind of niche um, poultry and livestock operation. And I had met Mike actually at, at Savoy. Um, he, the owner of the farm, um, he ran the farm. Mike Gezzi, along with Jen Small, was the kind of handsome, blue eyed delivery guy who came in every Wednesday with a half a pig over his shoulder, and you know. Uh, late June one year, I was like, hey, we have a couple extra days off um, for July 4th. Can I come up to your farm? And he kind of gave me a look and said, sure. And, and that began like a, a tradition. I went up to hang with uh, Mike and Jen and their two kids, Jane and Charlie, for the next couple of the years. So when it came time for me to leave the kitchen, they were like a logical choice. And I literally wrote them an email and said, like, hey, it would be cool if I could come live with you guys for a while. <laughs> And they said yes. And that was, they, you know, it was not something they had ever done. I didn't really know what it was going to look like. Um, and I, you know, packed up my stuff and sold what few items I had that were of any note and moved in with them. I was not just working on the farm. I was living, you know, across the hall from um, from them. I really wanted to be kind of fully immersed in what this business looked like. And it was an amazing year. Shushan is a small village of about 300 people up in Washington County, um, one of the most agricultural counties here in New York State, but also um, one that's struggled a lot with, um, weirdly, food access in this way that you have kind of rural areas where a lot of food is produced and a lack of access, um, some employment challenges, um, so it was really interesting to meet the people who were, were working alongside of Mike and Jen on the farm and then come down to the city for market, make deliveries. And um, we put together a program called Farm Camp, which I think is definitely like one of my favorite uh, accomplishments from that time. Um, farm Camp was the idea was to influence future buyers in the New York, New York City food world. So. We wanted to attract uh, line cooks and chefs and writers and people who could influence folks in buying decisions. Um, and we figured if we could get them up for like a couple of intensive days on the farm and really show them what a strong regional agriculture infrastructure looked like, that they would be invested in supporting those regions. So we put together a curriculum that included... Um, you know, conversations on meat birds versus laying birds, heritage hogs, of course. We visited um, a small-scale uh, goat dairy, um, consider Bardwell Farms, that makes amazing kind of goat and cow's milk cheeses. We visited uh, Maple Inn Farms, a wonderful kind of sugar shack up in Salem, New York. Uh, a, a new kind of 
uh, creamery, Battenkill Creamery, which now is somewhat ubiquitous in any kind of milk designation of choice here in the city. And then we had people come in to talk about um, putting easements on farms, farmland conservation, um, and a bunch of, of course, like really big, delicious meals. Yeah. That was like pretty awesome. You know what's fascinating is, is yes, you're giving people this infrastructure, but you're you're not just changing policy you're changing ideas uh, by bringing people up there you're recognizing what needs to be done with with products that can't get out of there and you know consider bardwell is is a good example of that because when you came back to new york uh you started this great program called no goat left behind you know, and Goattober is one of my favorite months of the year. <laughs> I, I feel like we should have a calendar called yeah, Goattober, right. and it's just 12 Goattobers in a row. <laughs> but, you know, again, you were saying that this was this area that, you know, had the ability to grow all this amazing stuff and, and raise fantastic livestock. But there were things, I, I hate to say going to waste, but it's, it's true, things that just weren't being utilized to their fullest. Definitely. And goat meat. Goat meat was one of them. Yeah, that was like the big project. I came back to New York to uh, pursue a graduate education at the new school. And that spring started working again for Patrick at Heritage Foods part time. And him and his wife and uh, Saxelby of Saxelby Cheesemongers had come up with this kind of interesting idea over dinner, like most interesting ideas, where they were talking about, wow, man, to like make cheese you need to have milk and to get milk uh, animals need to have been pregnant because really milk is for babies it's for the offspring so um if you are a male goat you know what's your fate <laughs> you can't milk a male goat. you cannot milk a male goat <laughs> learn that one the hard way <laughs> um and and so i was kind of charged with this project of figuring out well what was happening to these male animals and was there something that Heritage Foods uh, USA could do um, as a business that, you know, 52 weeks a year was uh, bringing, you know, 200 whole hogs to market uh, in restaurants in New York City and um, San Francisco, Vegas, L.A., a couple of spots around the country. So started making calls and uh, obviously consider Bardwell was at one of the one of the farms at the top of the list to see kind of what they were doing with those goats and to see if like, Hey, maybe we could buy those and Hey, maybe we could talk to chefs in New York city and maybe they would put goat on their menu yeah. in October. I mean, did you have ideas of dishes? Because I think of something like Cocovan, you know, which mm-hmm. is obviously the male counterpart. Um, it's such a classic rooted dish in French cuisine. W- were there recipes you were giving chefs saying, well, you know, this is this kind of cut of meat. You can do this with it. Um, maybe we can make, older male goat meat a thing yeah well we weren't looking you know at the time we were not looking at older animals we were looking at um kids from that year so the way it works in the northeast is animals um get pregnant in the fall they carry their babies through the winter and give birth uh, late winter early spring and what is nice about that is the animals can then spend the summer feeding on um pasture or forage Um, And they don't require really intensive um, shelter. They don't require a farmer to buy an additional feed. And come uh, right around October, they are able to be slaughtered and hang at around, you know, 30, 35 pounds, which is uh, 
similar to the size of a smaller lamb. So something that we felt chefs would be familiar with from a car- carcass composition. And in that first year, kind of telling chefs what to cook, man, you know, I was more just like, give it a try and then tell me what works. And so over the years, I think that there has been kind of a a growing experimentation with goat meat. And obviously most people's experience up to this point is they maybe had it at like an ethnic restaurant, but they hadn't ever really worked with it professionally. They weren't really sure how they were going to be able to use it. And so it's been really amazing you know, to call chefs this October and think about how different it was from that first year when they're like, oh, yeah, put us down for two a week. Mm -hmm. And they they know what to do with it. They get excited about experimenting with all kinds of dishes from making, you know, meatballs and ragus and more like spice dishes to really beautiful, simple preparations, Um, really thinking about it the same way you would think about any other meat at the, the center of a plate. You know, I always wondered, too, with goat, there's a large Caribbean community here in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. um, whether or not you were able to approach any of those more ethnic and kind of ingrained restaurants in, you know, Prospect Lefferts Garden and, you know, uh, East, East Flatbush. Were they interested in that same kind of meat? Well, you know, one of the things that I did a lot of in the early years is really looking at what was happening in goat uh, consumption and purchasing across the U.S. more broadly. And I was really surprised to see that goat meat consumption had been on the rise for quite some time, that the U.S. imported quite a bit of goat from New Zealand and Australia. And um, finding inroads to some of those more ethnic spots, that it was just not where our chefs were. Um, I think we really felt through Heritage, like our role was to create... Um, a consumer-facing demand for this by introducing it to new populations. I think also looking at some of those more traditionally uh, ethnic restaurants, we couldn't compete on the price. It's weird to me still that it is less expensive to eat a goat that was raised in Australia than it is to eat a goat that was raised in you know Washington County or or somewhere in New York State, and that goes to a lot of um, what is working and not working in our agriculture system. In a weird way, the GOAT project was this amazing kind of microcosm of what we were doing well in the U.S. and what we weren't and, and how the Northeast in particular sat compared to different things around the rest of the country and, and then the world. And very quickly, something that seems like it should be super simple, lots of hungry people in New York, mm-hmm. lots of people who tr- grew up eating GOAT, how do we connect them in a way that makes economic sense for the farmer? You know, it was always fascinating listening to uh, the farmer report because you are you know, talking to a lot of these kind of single subject um, farmers and entrepreneurs. And some recent ones were like broad, Broadbent Country Ham mm-hmm. and, and um, Luke Holden of Luke's Lobster. Um, there was a Zia Chili one in, in this past season as well. But you're, you're talking to these very specific, um, like, artisans and makers and, and growers. Uh, I mean, what happens in your head after or during an episode? Do you, do you have a no goat left behind per each person that you meet? Because it feels <laughs> like those wheels are turning to be able to, you know, figure out where they fit in the larger context of what you called a microcosm, but it is very macro. Yeah, well, I think for me, you know... I'm trying to distill for my listeners useful information for them to bring into their everyday life, into their everyday kind of purchasing decisions, whether that's at the grocery store or the farmer's market or out to eat. I think 
oftentimes when we talk about food in the food system, we're really comfortable talking about it in like super big, big numbers, like, oh, the world, we need to feed the world, or this is like a huge problem in the farm bill. Um, in a way that's so separate from us as individuals that it just feels like, how are we going to have any impact? Um, we're also really good at talking about it in a very small, very intimate way. Oh, the individual farmer that I buy from every week at the market and I've been to their farm and it's a very kind of direct line where we're not so great is this kind of middle space, which is where I think we'd like to see more food produced. Um, so I really try on the show to think about how do I like make things at a scale that an individual can understand? What are the units of me measurement, the units of time, the flow of a thing? So I can help you as a listener get a sense of like what it means to be in the middle of the, you know, annual green chili harvest in New Mexico or what it means to uh, be a producer of American country ham, trying to give you some pieces to latch on to that feel at your scale and a little bit of vocabulary because people make food choices based on a lot of different factors, money, time, providence, uh, environmental impact, flavor, taste. And even though like I might have my own personal like hierarchy of which of those are most important, I jump all around the place depending on where I'm at and what's going on and what I have access to. So my goal with the farm report is really to give you enough information that you feel empowered and can uh, make choices that are reflective of your values um, and make things a little bit less kind of overwhelming in their just sheer vastness, like to really demonstrate what are some ways that you as an individual can have impact and, and do have impact. You know, you are talking very personally to somebody that is making a decision for themselves, but it is a power and number thing too. Sure. Because yes, you're having these intimate conversations and you think one person's choosing for themselves, but they're choosing for this collective, for this community that we're hoping comes out of what we say and, and what we do. Um, and, and another community that you've grown in that same fashion, maybe intentionally or not, was Ladies' Night. And I think it's kind of across the same lines that, you know, from a very intimate and personal discussion or forum or, or gathering, you can make waves. Totally. I mean, I feel like, you know, I had talked enough about males via the GOAT project. <laughs> <laughs> so I was ready for some lady time. Um, yeah, no, uh, ladies night, I think, was in, in a, you know, being able to look at things uh, uh, with a little bit of, you know, hindsight being 2020. I think I was like really trying to create the type of support network that I feel like I needed. I feel like uh, women spend a lot of time walking around the world, essentially being told like what to do and how to be uh, in literature in pop culture through different kind of systems of our patriarchy that are very, very clearly defined, like what makes a woman, a woman, a girl, a girl, how you, how you get to be. And um, I just felt like a real need for a space. I'm like, I don't like need to be told what to do, but I do need like help. I do need a, a space where I can go and sort out things that are kind of coming up in my life. And 
my life doesn't happen in a silo. I feel like a lot of women's groups and, and literature geared towards women, it's like, okay, we're going to do this as a career thing, and this is a relationship thing, and this is a body thing, and everything kind of gets separated in this way as though you like walk around putting different hats on. You're like, now I will show up as errant career person, and all the other parts of me fade away. And that's just not how I really experience life. It's not how any of the women I spend time with really experience life. And I think Ladies' Night is a very simple idea of getting a group of women together in a room with no agenda, um, but really a spirit of openness, a spirit of warmth. So everyone you know, belongs, everyone can feel comfortable. And I feel like women naturally find what they need, what they need that night, what they need at that time in their life. And it's exciting for me to like sit you know, against the wall and kind of like take a look over an event. And, you know, you just see people like nodding and talking and exchanging cards and like really kind of vigorously like exchanging kind of information and vibes or like quieter spaces where people are like hugging and whispering and off to the side, you know, just that open spot to like go in and get what you need. I think is 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 really valuable and and strangely kind of rare in a more social setting. Well, it's also a very competitive you know uh, environment too. And you're talking about women in the food world, yeah. You know, and yes, it started with a dozen women between the ages of you know thirty <laughs> and sixty. But you know, we, we're all fighting for our careers here in New York and sure. in this world. Uh, building a community is about supporting that community too. Um, and you know, I, I'm pulling quotes of what you said today and assuming this is what you want to leave behind as your legacy at Heritage. You know, from Zingerman's, you said, be your best self every day. And I think, you know, though we're a weekly show, that, that's what we try and strive to do. Um, not just have great guests on, but be a great listener and, a, you know, a great conversationalist um, and make people think that they can aspire to whatever they want to do. Um, you know, food is at the center of culture. So, yes, I, I kind of pronounce the show as something that, that deals with the visuals of culinary arts, food and art and design. But, you know, really, food is at the core of everything we do. Empowerment, education, influence. I mean, th these are all things that we're getting from being on radio. D do you feel like you understood that coming in here as an executive director and what do you think we need to do to kind of impart more power, um, more knowledge on our listeners and, you know, just, just enrich ourselves as people? Well, I think, you know, I start with a baseline assumption that there's enough room for everyone to succeed. There's not a finite amount of success. Like you doing well doesn't take away from like me and my ability to do well. Um, I think also the assumption that people are good um, and they're trying to do the best for themselves, for their family, for the friends, for the people in their lives. And we're all coming to the table with different stuff. You know, you never know what somebody kind of is walking around with, what happened to them that day, what's happening in their life. And I think... Um, Really working on empathy, really working on um, being a great listener and really understanding that, hey, you can be ambitious um, and you can like want to do well um, 
but that doesn't have to come at someone else's expense. There's lots of room for everyone to succeed. And this idea that there's like a finite amount of space and I got to get mine, uh, you know, it just leads you down a dark path. So what is the light? What, what is your path? <laughs> I mean, what is it that you want to do next, um, you know, individually with, with your community? How do you want to engage and will it still be on radio? Well, I definitely, you know, plan to continue uh, the Farm Report as a weekly show and and working through radio. Radio is such a great kind of democratic way to connect with people, and and I hope that will always be a part of my life. I think when when it really comes down to it, um, you know, I feel like my work is when I feel the happiest, when I feel the most nourished, it's when I'm able to work with people and work with organizations to help them be their best selves. And that happens in a lot of different ways. So I think for me, that's the kind of question I'm going to be chewing on over the next couple of months is, um, you know, how do I, what, what do I need to do? What do I need to work on with me, Aaron, to be able to show up in the best way to support kind of people and organizations in my life? What are the skill sets that I have garnered through the last 11 years of my kind of like self-directed postdoc? And and what are the areas that like I need, still need work? And I think I am super fascinated, um, by, um, thinking deeply about like what it means to be a great leader, how to develop management skills, how to, uh, connect with and motivate people, um, you know, how to kind of lock in to kind of what's going on with someone. And so I'm excited to, you know, surround myself. My whole life, it's kind of the same thing. I'm like, man, if I can just like get in a room where everyone else is like smarter and more intelligent and interesting than me, then like I'm going to be fine. Yeah, I've, I've always thought, you know, <laughs> just surround yourself by people better than you and it makes you better. Yeah. And that's what that's kind of happened here at Heritage. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. That was like the vibe at Zingerman's. I feel like that was the vibe in the kitchen, at the farm, and, and at Heritage. You're like, you know, the world, especially now, feels like a little scary sometimes. But I don't really know any other way to solve a problem than to, like, get great people together, hopefully with some good food and drink, and work it out. Absolutely. 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 That's much. You told me that all good decisions <laughs> come out of a good dinner. <laughs> well, I think they definitely yeah. start there. Yeah. So, you know, I, I'd like to think of myself as someone who will be successful as a, as a convener, as a connector. I think the network part of Heritage Radio Network is... Um, really core to, you know, what I've tried to work with uh, you and all of the other hosts to kind of build here as, you know, none of us are going to kind of make it on our own. It's not that fun, you know, like I like having time alone, but like ultimately, like I want, you know, I want us all to get there. You know, I jokingly say this is the most kind of consistent thing in my life. I come in here every Tuesday at three. It's it's a marker for my week, but also kind of it refreshes and resets me and it's, it's almost necessary now. So like, thank you for giving me this space. Thank you for all that you've done for heritage. And thank you from all the women that have been part of ladies night. And I, I want to employ, you know, so many people that are in that space to go find Aaron, 
AaronMarieFairbanks.com. What what is the other <laughs> yeah, iteration right. of your website? Oh, uh, be kind, be fierce. <laughs> and if you are a woman in the food world, please go to a ladies' night and you know start making this world a better place. Awesome. Yeah, we're going to be taking them national this year. So let me know if you want us to come to your city. We'll come. We'll come to you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. And it's a real treat. I'm looking forward to listening to The Farm Report in 2017 and beyond. You've been listening to The Food Scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Big thank you to Christmas Tree Farmers Association of New York, Music by Cookies, and David Engineering. Just one more shout-out. If you are not a member of HeritageRadioNetwork.org, we are a 501c3. That is a nonprofit, and we look for listeners like you to keep us on the airwave. So think about becoming a member or donating whatever you can or just spreading the word, heritageradionetwork.org. See you in 2017. listening to heritage radio network food radio supported by you for our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events subscribe to our newsletter enter your email at the bottom of our website heritageradionetwork.org connect with us on facebook instagram and twitter at heritage underscore radio heritage radio network is a non-profit organization driving conversations to make the world a better fairer more delicious place And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.